So founder was really cool. Came in the first day. He introduced me to my colleagues. Oh, everything was great. And then he's like, here's a computer. Here's a laptop. Here's uh, the phone. You know, you can start making calls. And the first thoughts that popped into my head was like, oh, I got to make calls in front of them. Welcome to Decision Point, a podcast about overcoming adversity in sales and the growth that we experience in the process. I'm Brad Siemens. Joining Brad in today's episode of Decision Point is Moore Asunli. Moore is the founder of FDTC, as well as the host of SaaS Talks from Lead to Close, a short-form SaaS sales podcast sharing common challenges and strategies to close more of your deals from the moment they reach your pipeline. To learn more about Moore or FDTC, go to demotoclose.com. You know, tell us your background, kind of how you got to where you're at. I, I mean, when I was younger, I, I uh, studied marketing. I wanted to do the classic like Don Draper advertising. So I, I wanted to do copywriting. I thought I was good at it. I was good at it. I'm good at it. And then long story short, didn't go the marketing route, stayed. I got into real estate like everybody else in South Florida. That's what people do when you don't know what to do. And then from there, well, right out of college, actually, my first job out of college was a sales job, cold calling, legit company. I quit the first day within the first hour. I was scared out of my mind. And I've done sales before. I've done like retail sales. I've done like door knocking when I was a kid trying to sell like uh, tickets to go to the Washington DC trip. I, do- I did that. But when you're older, you're more aware of your anxiety. And so I-, I quit first day and then I avoided sales for like three years. I had P- the crazy sales PTSD, had sales anxiety. Yeah. And then when I was 25, 26, uh, sorry, a little bit before that, I joined a Keller Williams brokerage. And they were very bullish on cold calling and door knocking. <clears throat> and so that's what I did. I did cold calling and door knocking for a year. Got a part-time job at Allstate Insurance doing cold calling for them. And so after 12 months, I did a, over 70,000 cold calls. I, I I know I was able to track it because we had a, a phone tracker for both real estate and Allstate. So I was able to track the numbers. But that got me over my fear of sales. So real quick, I want to I wanna tap on the idea of having sales PTSD, because I think a lot of people have that, right? So you sort of fall into a sales role and it's not what you expected and you have a a little bit of trauma. So talk about kind of what was going on, what created the traumatic experience and then how did you get over that? Yeah, I think the issue was me. It wasn't the company. So for me, when I I walked into the company, so interview went really well. The founder was like, you know what? We had another person we were going to hire, but we love how you presented the interview. So we're going to hire you. We're going to order your business cards. So founder was really cool. Came in the first day. He introduced me to my colleagues. Oh, everything was great. And then he's like, here's a computer. Here's a laptop. Here's uh, the phone. You know, you can start making calls. And the first thoughts that popped into my head was like, oh, I got to make calls in front of them. Like they're they're working, but I, I, I was just very aware that while I'm making calls, they're going to be just like listening. They're not going to necessarily say anything, but they're going to maybe think, oh, he sounds like an idiot or he doesn't sound like he's ta- what he's talking about. Or I, I just start like getting too aware of every- my surroundings and not in the moment. So I was just, I was I had a fear of being judged. And then y- you either stop there or you go into a rabbit hole. And I went into a rabbit hole. I was like, oh, shit. And then I first thing I did was open the computer and I checked my I was just going through my hotmail emails back in the day and I was archiving emails. I was like, I'm just trying to kill time. And the entire time I'm like, oh my god, I gotta make the calls. I gotta make the calls. I can't I can't do this for I can't archive emails all day. I can't not get on the call. They're gonna know. Oh no, they know that I'm not I'm not gonna at sales. And then I was like, okay, I gotta get out of here. I gotta like I I I'm gonna blow my cover. And so I quit. <laughs> I just left. <laughs> 
So, so I think the fear of being judged is something that a lot of people, you know, it's kind of like going to the gym the first time, right? I think a lot of people are super worried about going to the gym, what people are going to think about you. But, you know, the reality is most people aren't going to pay attention to what you say. You may feel differently. So I want to hear that. And the people that do are probably going to be trying to help you. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I saw. I remember I started working out. I stopped since I got married. But when when I started working out, like I didn't care so much about the gym. So I, like I never got anxiety in the gym. But it was definitely more when if I were hired for a particular job, and now I had to like show up to it. Even I remember even when I was like so. I mean, like fast forward, I became a VP of sales, got over my fear of selling. But I remember at one point at one company, I was a VP of sales, and I was it was a startup. And I had to build out a bunch of departments. So I got lost in the other departments and I stopped being front facing in the sales side. And at one point, I went back to the sales side coaching my team and I wasn't confident to get on a call and show them how it's done and, and sh- call the prospect just because I was like, oh, I've been out of the game for a bit, for at least a month or two. And I'm like, if I screw up, they're going to know, oh shit, how's more VP of sales? So I think the only way somebody asked me the other day or the other, it was like last month, like, how do I get over my anxiety of sales? How do I get over my fear of it? You're not supposed to get over it. You're supposed to get, you're supposed to just like the way I I described it, the metaphor analogy I gave was when you buy a leather shoe for the first time, even if it's a $600 shoe, it's going to be really stiff in the beginning. Extremely stiff. Leather is just really stiff until you break it in. And the first day you're going to wear it, it's not going to feel comfortable. And so if you let the uncomfort decide whether it's the right shoe or not and you take it off, you're just never going to wear the shoe and you're down $600. The only way to, to make sure that the, the shoe is actually comfortable and get your money's worth is to wear it every day, break it in, and then the leather ends up softening up and molds to your foot. And so you're not not wearing the shoe, you're wearing the shoe, you just, you've, you've, broken, you've broken through it. And so I think sales anxiety and the fear of sales or any, any fear at all is the exact same thing. The, the more you avoid it, the more the fear compounds. Um, and so the way to fix that is you got to get more at-bats. So if you're doing cold calling and you're calling, let's just say, 10 calls per day just because you have a crazy fear, triple that. Call 30 phone numbers a day. If you're doing demos, try to get more demos. If you're if you're getting rejected, get rejected 30 times, you know, 10 times more than what you're currently getting rejected. You just got to break yourself in. So, so how do you make the transition from kind of BDR to VP of sales? And then it looks like you guys had at some point you're part of a business that gets acquired, right? Um, so I'd love to hear about I'd love to hear about that. You know what the what the process was like getting the role, what it was like to have an acquisition. Yeah. So yeah. So I kind of went all over the place. So quit quit my job, my first sales job out of college. Avoided sales for like three years. Then I got a marketing job. Then I switched into real estate. Real estate got me comfortable doing sales. Then I joined two startups that failed. The third one, Practice Panther. I joined in as the first employee, employee number one. I became a VP of sales within six months. And that was, I mean, the, the, the roles that I've, I've had was is in early stage B2B SaaS startups. So within four months, it went from just, I mean, sorry, within four years, I was the only employee with two founders. Four years later, we had 50 plus employees, got acquired by Alpine Software Group. Yeah, I mean the acquisition wasn't like you know night and day. You felt the difference of of uh, of the culture, but it happened over time. Yeah, I mean that was an interesting interesting journey. I got my PhD in in startups and go to market and sales in that in that job. Now, what would you say the big difference was between so the first two companies that failed? Could you tell a difference 
in the company that succeeded versus the two that failed? Or was it just a different, you could, okay, you're nodding your head. Yeah, yeah, you could. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the first company I joined as the first employee, it was a really cool, it was called Movus. It was sort of like an Orbitz or Kayak, but for booking movers. So you, you as a consumer are moving. So you would search and compare different movers and then you can book them. Pretty cool idea. Pretty, pretty cool concept. So cool concept. They had very little money in, in what they raised. They raised only $185,000. So that money ran out very fast. And so beyond starting out very fast, you can't use that money for so much. You can't spend crazy amounts of money in advertising. So we had to do a lot of guerrilla marketing and that takes time. It's a branding play, guerrilla marketing. So the failure in that company was lack of funding and we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough of a runway. And so after five months, the company shut down. The second company I joined, a um, company called SciShop, it doesn't exist anymore, obviously. They had funding. The owner of that company has a very successful commercial insurance company. She loves technology. So she started this app where you can take photos or videos of anything that looks suspicious on this, you know, like a, a white minivan that says free candy on it. Like that was our ad that we had. <laughs> and she spent over a million dollars and hired me as like marketing sales. And then the way we went to market for the consumer side, the user end, was we we uh, did some Facebook ads, and it was just a disaster. And <laughs> and and then like there was another side to the business where it was like the police law enforcement would have access to the cloud of all the photos and videos, but they didn't buy into it so much. Nobody wanted it, and they had the funding. So the, the third company, Practice Panther, when I joined. One of the questions I asked was, do you have funding? And the answer was yes. And the other question was, is there an MVP? The answer was yes. And I was like, do you have any, is there a proof of concept now also? Do people, are people using it? Are people paying for it? So they weren't, people weren't paying for it, but people were using the software when I joined Practice Panther. So now when I, when I left Practice Panther to go to any other company, same questions. How much funding do you have? What's your runway? And are people using it? If so, how much? And are, do you have any paying customers? And is there a product market fit? If there isn't a product market fit, then that's a little bit more of a risky, risky move because you're you're just figuring it out as you go. And it's and if there is no product market fit and you're going into a company that has forecasts and quotas, that's extremely risky and dangerous. What did you feel like the biggest lesson you learned from the two failed startups was like as a salesperson or executive? Yeah. So as a salesperson, an AE that's looking or even an SDR that's looking for a startup like a SaaS company to join in. Make sure there's a product market fit. That's for damn certain. Make sure there's a runway also. So and, and would you say like, hey, if you're looking at a company and you know it's bootstrapped, it has money, it's growing, it's got cash, that's the same as having a runway, right? Well, no, you can have cash, but how long will that cash last you last for? If it's five months, that's pretty risky. If it's 12 months, it's less risky if it's more than 12 months. So it all depends. So you can ask like, hey, I saw that you raised a seed round of 4 million or 5 million or whatever it is. You know, what's the runway in that company? Um, what are we looking at? And I think somebody that's going into an SDR or AE role at a company may not feel entitled to ask that question, but they should ask that question. No, they, no I think they definitely should. No, I think it's super important. I've seen, and I've seen a lot of, of my friends that have entered markets have this same same problem, right? They come in, they come in as a VP of sales or they come in as a, an executive and they don't ask the right questions and and then they get uh, disheartened. And I think those are important, right? Because if, if the company doesn't have enough cash, it's going to affect everybody around it. And if it doesn't have product market, I mean, all three of those things that you listed out mm -hmm. have great impacts in how people behave. 
Yeah, and then one thing I've been noticing, and I think it's something to to look for as an A, because I'm talking to a bunch of A's now on like LinkedIn and my my Facebook community, but a lot of them tell me I feel like I'm on an island by myself <clears throat> in terms of mentorship and coaching, and so a lot of these companies are hiring, and if you look at their their job description, it's like surpass quota, achieve you know crush quota, scale the company, do all these things, and then you you find out that they they don't offer any coaching. Um, and their coaching is really only for the first 90 days of onboarding. And after that, it's like, hey, you're on your own. Um, and, I, and I made a poll on LinkedIn about this. And most reps aren't getting coached from, at least in my poll, aren't getting coached from their managers. Either because the managers or VPs of sales don't have time. They just, at least for startups, that is. I don't know how it is for like an, an Oracle or a Salesforce. No. But they don't have time because they're juggling too much because it's a startup. Or like one person just DM me this morning, like, yeah, every time I uh, schedule something on my manager's calendar to do a coaching session, he reschedules it for another time. And then that keeps getting rescheduled. And, and so what happens is AEs are going into these companies because they're promised equity and all this crap. They're not getting coached. And so their numbers suffer. And then their numbers suffer. And then they either get fired or they leave because they're just disheartened and they don't have any confidence anymore. So you're seeing from your from your community from S, from from A's and SDRs, there's a real desire to want to be coached. Yeah, I think so. I think for like senior level AEs that are that have been at a company for you know five plus years or so, there's less interest of coaching. They they're sort of set in their ways. Like I know what I'm doing. Don't bother me. I'm for it's more for like the newer AEs that are a year old into their role or brand new to the role or two years into the role, or maybe you have AEs that are three years into the role, but they're not, not hitting quota. But yeah, I'm, I'm seeing it more for newer AEs. And, and do you think, you know, there's all kinds of stats going around the internet about people not hitting their quota. Do you think this is a significant, like, do you think this is a significant piece of that? Yeah, I think this is one. So I think there's a few reasons. One, lack of coaching, that's for sure. That's 1000% true. There's plenty of studies beyond my poll that that points to um, lack of coaching yields lack of quota attainment and more coaching yields more quota attainment. The other thing is, if we're talking about BD, or if we're talking about startups, like really early stage startups, the forecast and the quota that's set is sort of arbitrary depending on the startup. If there's not if the startup is less than 2 years old, then what sort of his numbers do they have to go off of to show, hey, based on historic data, we've hit this amount. And so we expect the AEs to hit this amount. There is none. And so it's very arbitrary. And they're throwing numbers on the board. And many times the founders are rerunning the numbers. So the forecasts are new. They're rerunning quota. And that just sets up the AE for failure. Even the, It sets even up the VP of sales for failure because he's going after a quota for his team that is based on an arbitrary arbitrary decision making and and if he falls short of it then it's like hey you see that vp of sales doesn't work but if you look at the numbers maybe the numbers don't are making sense it's it's based on a fagazi fugazi, fugazi it's a wazi it's a woozy <laughs> right so so i think that's one lack of coaching i think over uh, inflated numbers and i think some companies they overhire so they go to these investors and they and i'll tell you firsthand i've seen it Founders are not necessarily are, are pitching the story and the vision. That's what and if you look at Adam Newman at, at, at for WeWork and you watch a documentary, investors bought into his story. They didn't really care much about the numbers. And so tell a good story and you could probably raise some money. And then a lot of a lot of founders, and it's a fact, I've seen it, they they inflate their numbers to the to the investors so they can get the money. And so now they've they've their company's been infused with new money and now they have a, a ton of pressure to live up to that. And so 
they put they they onboard or offload that pressure onto the VP of sales, which offboards that pressure to the AEs and so on and so forth. And it trickles down from the top. And so one of the things that they do in order to like hit the numbers that they presented to investors is we need a hire, we need manpower. And so they hire a bunch of people. They don't have the number of leads to support all those new reps. And so the whatever leads that there are currently hitting, it's being spread thin. So okay, so all this money's being raised. There's a everywhere. You know, we got to assume that a lot of these CEOs are overinflating. You know, now do you think that happens in second? It's not happening in the second, third round, right? Because we've already established. Yeah, I think it's happening more in like the seed, the the seed, the seed round. I'm sure it's happening across the board, honestly. But at least I've seen it in seed rounds, uh, Series A's, but mostly a lot in seed round. Uh, now, do you think there's a like where I was going with this was? Is, do you think there's some kind of like retribution or kickback? Is this going to recoil? Like, are we going to see a recoiling of all these companies not being able to hit their number? So I was thinking about that today. I was like. Like some companies are hiring like forty plus AEs for twenty twenty two, and some companies are hiring hundred plus, and it's it's actually insane. I'm thinking to myself, Bananas. yeah, they definitely don't have the number of inbound leads to support this volume of new hires. So they're probably so my guess is these new hires are spending a good chunk of their time doing outbound territory based. It has to be, and I just think outbound activity takes longer to ramp up. So I think if a company is doing outbound, they should have a realistic quota for their new reps. Like if a company is looking to scale fast, I think the way to do it, my opinion, is to put more money into ads, Captera, software advice, because you just can't compete with an ad that you place tonight where you get a lead overnight versus sending out an ad by an email, follow up a cold call, and then you get on the call with them. It just takes time. Yeah. Um, well, so so there, I guess there's a couple, we could go all over the place. There's two yeah, things yeah. that you threw out that I would love to talk about. One, I'd like to continue to talk about coaching and training at the startup level. And then I, the other thing I'd like to talk about is, you know, strat, you know, you mentioned like, hey, G2 Crowd, Captera. So let's let's spend the next, you know, 10, 15 minutes talking about those two subjects. So let's talk. Let's go back to talking about coaching, because I think that's super important. And so, you know, just open just hey, open conversation. Just give me all your thoughts about coaching and like what you think startups should be doing. Yeah. That they're not. Yeah. So I, I think. Let's talk about like uh, demo coaching. Okay. There's, I think there's plenty of outbound coaching out there, but let's you know talk about both. Whatever. I, I think startups should have a an internal the the sales leader should have minimum 20 percent of their time spent on consistently coaching their reps after onboarding. Even <clears throat> it just doesn't happen. And so if and it doesn't happen because the sales leader has a ton of other stuff that they have to hit, other initiatives. Hiring, interviewing, onboarding, et cetera, et cetera. So if that's the case, then I think that startup or that sales leader should bring in a co-pilot to help coach. And that co-pilot could be a contractor, it could be a company, it could be whatever it is. And they should have that to supplement the the sales manager or the VP of sales. So that's what they should do for coaching. Another thing they, they should do for coaching is they need to have some sort of software to be able to coach at scale. So either Avoma, Gong, Chorus, Refract, one of them. They need to have that. Now, what's the first one that you mentioned? Avoma, A-V-O-M-A. Yeah, the reason why I mentioned it is because they're month-to-month versus okay. everybody else that's a, a yearly. They're month-to-month. And I think for startups, if they're like strapped for cash or they're not comfortable paying upfront for a year, okay. then do do month-to-month. And, and Avoma is, is, a, is a good one for that one. You got to have the tech stack and you got to have the people. 
It's just like Marcus Lemonis, uh, the prophet. People yeah. process, profit. process technology, right? No, right? People process technology. <laughs> uh, it's 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 three P. So uh, people process product. People process product. I was I was trying to like say it with you, but then I got all the words. Yeah. Wrong, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your your business. So t- t- talk to us about what you're doing now. Yeah, FTTC. It started off as just like a standalone product, but after I launched, I got some success, and then. I noticed that, and I did additional market research. The problem with just having a, a course as its standalone is that it's the responsible responsibility of either the sales leader or the AE to take that and then make it their own based on their buyer persona, ICP, etc. So what I did was I did a slight pivot where FTTC now is a coaching program, a training program, where I would work with companies that have AEs, and I would specifically work on their demos, improving their demos. I don't. I don't talk about outbound. I don't pitch up. Like I know outbound. It's just not something that I, I, something yeah, you're that on, the, on the demo side. And what do you feel like the biggest mistakes people make on demos are? Yeah. Lack of discovery is usually, they, they, they treat discovery as if it's a luxury and not a need to have. And so what happens is they, they stay too much on the surface on the discovery. So if they ask a prospect, Hey, what's, what do you, you know, what's the reason we're on a call today? Whatever it is, they'll say something like prospect will respond. Yeah. We're looking for more robust system. All right, and that's enough for the rep to take down a note and move on, and that's a problem. Right. What does a robust system even mean? Um, right. You know, what is we're looking for a a true partner technology? What does that even mean? And so they don't spend enough time on discovery. So I think it's uh, so we're going to get into a little bit of maybe maybe the challenger sale. Have you read that book? Yeah, I love that book. Okay, so Jen, I had Jen Allen on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Great, we had a great, but. But yeah, so why do you think people don't like? It's natural for me to be like, like what, what, what? It, robust? Like what is that? Like what do you mean by robust? Yeah. But it's not natural for everybody for everybody else. So, so why do you think that is? Why is it not natural for for everybody to to throw the brakes up when they hear weird words like that? I think a couple of reasons. I think lack of confidence. They just don't feel confident enough to control the conversation. And in order to do, in order to dig on discovery, you need to have a level of control of the conversation and take the reins. And I think you have a newer AE that is talking to a a VP or a CEO or founder and they're intimidated because they're intimidated. They're like, all right, I got to rush through this. I know because I've I've been there. I've, I've done it before. So lack of confidence. Another, another reason is I think and I think that's really a big one. Another no, reason is they have they have a quota that they have to attain, and they know in order to have that quota, they have to close the deal, and they completely skip the part of discovery. And they're like, "All right, I need to get on demo in order to close the deal." No, you need to do discovery in order to do the demo in order to close the deal. So I think they're money hung, like they're they have, they're driven by this need for commission, and so they're trying to take a shortcut. But I still think the default is it goes back to lack of confidence, um, or a lack of uh, a lack of understanding of of why discovery is so crucial. And that could come from a lack of training from their sales leader. The sales yeah. leader is, is not is not pushing the discovery on them. Yeah. Now, what's your opinion on should software sales reps be doing discovery demos in the same swoop, same, same, same meeting? Yeah. Short answer is it depends. I think if you're dealing with a larger type of deal where you know it's going to it's going to be an enterprise. It's not going to be a one call close or even a two demo close. And you're going to have to speak to the head of this, the head of that, the head of that. Then in that case, there's no point rushing. Doing, I mean, there's no point doing the disco and demo at the same time yeah. because you know it's going to go through different rounds. And sometimes if you're dealing with like an SMB mid market, you could definitely do the disco demo. Uh, in the SMB mid market space that I've been in, it was disco demo 
most of the time and then at the same at the same time and then there are sometimes where we're doing discovery as part of the demo but the discovery was so deep and so there was just so much vibe happening between me and the prospect that i don't want to give i don't want to like stop that i want to i want to get as much intel as i can i want the prospect to open up as much as i can worst comes to worst we'll do the demo later on in the day or if we have time we'll just do the demo right then and there or we'll schedule the demo out later in the week but so i think it depends i usually default to disco demo but again, now, when you say uh, disco demo, disc discovery call space, then you do a demo. Or so all no, the same? yeah, it's all on the same call. So uh, let's just have a forty-five minute, blo- sixty-minute blocked out in my calendar. That first ten or fifteen minutes will be disco. Gotcha. And then based on the discovery, I can quickly go into the demo. Now, part of that is, well, hold on, don't you need to customize the demo? That's where Reprise comes in, or Demo Stack comes in, or Walnut. Yeah. It de- that's what I'm saying. It depends on the type of software you're selling. If you're so, so, re- talk, so you threw out a word there. What word did you say? Walnut. Walnut. Yeah, they, they're a competitor to Reprise and uh, Demo Stack. Okay, and that's just a product you use on the demo to make sure it goes smooth. No, that's sort of. It allows you to create a, a demo environment that that you can use specific to whoever you're talking to. Uh, okay. I, I've never used any of those softwares because I, I in the world that I I come from, I don't need it. It's not a, an yeah. overly complex software that create that has like very buggy and it's it, i don't need it but for big enterprise complex solutions i can see the use for those software interesting yeah i you know i think about see i've seen i think it depends right i think it depends on your sales cycle depends on your sales guys i've seen some of our clients do or part of the partner specifically go straight to it that we work with it goes straight to it and i think it really hurts them if they don't do a discovery call you know they're yeah. so focused on the demo it's like how do you sell if you don't understand what the person's trying to sell for yeah, even now, like, right, like I'm like speaking to like company, like founders for like FTTC, my company. And like, like in order for me to know, like, I don't, it's on a software. So it's, I'm not demoing anything. My demo is my pitch of what I do. But even then I'll spend majority of the call doing a discovery call. Hey, w- how many demos you're doing per month? What's the conversion rate? How many reps you have? And it's all discovery. And then if we have time, then I'll go into my pitch. If we don't have time, we'll do a follow-up based on the notes that I had in my previous call. But that's just my, that's sort of my business model for my product that I'm selling. But like Practice Panther, for example, we could do a disco and demo on the same call. It was, it, it, if, if you know the product really, really, really well, and you know your buyer persona really well, you can quickly pivot from disco, going to the demo and knowing exactly what features to show and how to talk about those features. Yeah. I think I, as a buyer, I think the biggest mistake, so I take a lot of sales calls because I like to hear, I just regularly take calls because I like to stay current with how people are selling and I, and it helps me be a better seller. And so I would say, and I encourage my salespeople to do the same thing because I think the best way to learn is to learn from other people. So what, what I have found, and some of this is maybe personality, is that you know questions are super important in the sales process, but you also have to be really, like you gotta be genuine. So if you've come out of a sales training and you come out of Sandler and you're just fresh out of sales school, you can be really antagonistic. Like Sandler with the wrong young rep can be just just tons of damage, I think, to the sales cycle because it's aggressive. It's not, you know, you got to be empathetic and curious, which I don't know how you sell without curiosity, but there is a whole lot of people that aren't very curious. And I, I think the other thing in the in the demo that I people get, I get, I watch just showing features that aren't important, you know, like just, just getting on stuff that, you know, going through the process and I can respect as a salesperson, like I respect the flow. 
Like, hey, you got a process and a flow that you want to go through. So it's like, I don't want to mess that up. But at the same time, I think you got to be cognizant of like being able as a seller, you got to be able to adapt and change to your buyer's person, like how your buyer, your person, the personality of the person you're selling to. I think super important. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think every <clears throat> every company should have part of their playbook should have a, a, a area there that talks about the ICP and the buyer persona. And then let, let's go like a little bit more granular. That buyer persona should contain, let's just say that one of your buyer persona is a CEO or let's call it a VP of marketing. That section of VP of marketing should contain sort of like a, a matrix of like, hey, what is this VP of marketing like? What do they like? What do they dislike? What does their day look like? What is what is their role, their responsibilities? What keeps them up? And I like all this stuff. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And so when you study the, your buyer persona really well and you know it by heart, when you're on a call with a VP of marketing, you already know how they're thinking, what they like, what they need to see. And then you do the discovery and they find out and you find out that they're trying to accomplish X, Y, Z and they're dealing with this type of challenge. Then you can quickly pivot onto the demo and say, hey, based on what you're telling me, this is exactly what you like. Because when you know your buyer, you know your industry and you know yeah. your product, you can quickly do the yeah. demo. You don't need to schedule a demo. And then you only show them if you have like 20 features, but based on the discovery, there's only one feature that's going to like hit their you know, like really drive home what they need, then only show that one feature. Yeah. And I can say as a buyer, I've definitely seen people throw, like I've been in demos where they've thrown out something that I didn't know the product did. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. You know, but I would have liked to have experienced it like, hey, I'm going to run through, I'm going to do like a quick run through of features. And if you, if I ping something that's really exciting to you, you just say, you, you say I hit a nerve and let's, let's talk about it. That's personally how I would like to, you know, to do it. Because I think one of the one of the downsides to all the visibility and transparency that we have as sellers now or buyers. So as a buyer, I can go and I can I can think I'm learning everything about your product, right? I can go on your website, I can go to your blog post, I can go to your G two. The the I think the danger to that is that you get a buyer that thinks they know more about your product than they do, and that could be reality and that could also be not reality in the sense that I did a bunch of research one time on a product. I was annoyed. I felt like I knew more mm. about the product than the salesperson. Yeah. And he actually, he actually school, he actually got me. Like I, he actually threw a feature out of me that I didn't know. Like I felt like I knew, you know, I had a couple hours into research on the business and I thought I knew better than he knew. And he actually, he actually got me. He's like, boom. What about this? You knew about this? I'm like, I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I had the complete opposite. I had I did a demo with a an email service provider type of vendor, and this was a few weeks ago. And I was like, Do you have so they one of the features that I was, it was sort of like a competitor to Outplay or Outreach, and I wanted to know if I could embed Loom videos and for it to show up as a as a GIF, and he's said no, we can't do that, but I can find out if that's a feature request or whatever it is. Long story short, I'll be off the demo and I was like messing around with it. And I was like, holy shit, you can do it actually. There's there's a function. Oh. And I emailed him yeah. back. I was like, you see, you could, you could do it. He's like, oh, yeah, you learn something new every day. And it was a very basic functionality. It wasn't. But that's his response. He should know that. Right. I mean, that's. That pissed the, me off. Like, yeah. The salespeople need to know. Every, I think they need. No, they don't think. Look, they need to know about the product. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I, that's I, mean, why I believe you, that an AE will have more success in working at a software company that they have used or can relate to like okay i like that right? like it's just easy like i can't relate to accounting software because i'm never going to be a cpa and i have no interest in being a cpa yeah. um so i probably won't ever want to sell an accounting software but selling uh e-commerce software selling 
a sales or marketing type of software, I can relate to that. And it's going to be a lot easier for me to, to, to sell it. So I think that's no, obviously you weren't an attorney, but you were able, you were able to find something there that you felt like you could. Yeah. I was definitely not an attorney. So I was successful at it. And I think a natural born salesperson or have like the natural DNA could probably be successful at selling something they can't fully relate to. And, and that was also like one of my, I call it the third attempt or my first roles as a VP of sales at a software company at a B2B. And so like, for me, it was just exciting selling software. And so, yeah, I, I got lucky. Right. And I, I, even if you give me an accounting software to sell, I could probably do it really well, but, but it's just long-term you'll get burnt out selling a software you can't relate to. And I know, cause I talked to somebody that was selling an accounting software. They're like, this is boring. I'm like, you sound bored. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I totally, I get, I get it. Yeah. I don't know. And I think it's, a lot of people... yeah, I think it's worth mentioning even a VP of sales or even an AE that's going into a, a software company that they can relate to that they love. Your first few demos are going to suck. They just won't be good. I know if I mm -hmm. go into a company now and let's so say I join full time and they give me their software to sell. And I spend, you know, a couple of weeks like learning this, the product and I go sell for the first time. I won't do as good as the top sales rep there. I just won't because there's a learning curve. Uh, I'll need to know the software sure. like the back of my hand in order for me to sell it. Like it's, you know, like it's nothing. And so I think reps that are joining, don't beat yourself up for not, no, not sounding like a product expert or, or an expert in what you're selling in the beginning. It just takes time. It does take time. Yeah. And I think there's, anyway, we're getting, we're getting uh, towards the end here. So what's the one thing you're super passionate about right now? It can be business. It can be personal. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely passionate about business. B2B sats. Like when I, when I get on a call, a, a coaching call with a, with a rep and I give them, you know, we're coaching their demo and they, they have like that eureka moment. Like, Oh shit. I, I see what you mean now. And like, we'll do like a tonality workshop or whatever it is. And we'll do like a role play and they see how they sound based on our practice. That's really fun. But business is a big passion line. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. As always, uh, if you want more information on the podcast, go to monsterconnect.com forward slash podcast. Uh, you can get last season's, uh, last year's episodes. You can get all the new episodes for this year. And as always, remember, don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can. Until next time. Until next time.